2 Chronicles chapter 5. And actually, I'm going to start by reading chapter 6, verse 42, verses 42 to, uh, or verses 40 to 42. 2 Chronicles. Let me read this and then we'll pray and we'll get into this together. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be opened and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away from the, the, the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant, David. And Father, we pray as we get into this section, Lord, as we look at um, the dedication of, the te- of Solomon's temple, that, Lord, we would have a similar experience as this first generation did. Where, Lord, they seek your face and you show up. You make yourself Known. Father, we pray you would make yourself known to us this morning. Help us, Lord, to desire to be where you are and to meet with you. Open our hearts, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we have in, these, in this section, basically all of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, and really most of chapter 7 is Solomon now has finished the temple. The author of Chronicles is showing us how the temple's been built, it's been complete. And so now they're having what you might call the dedication service. But this is a much bigger than just, hey, we finished the building, let's, up, let's celebrate. Let's, let's go, this is great, the building's all done. It's more than that. This is really Solomon getting, gathering God's people together and saying, let's now experience the purpose of the temple. The temple is a place where God meets with his people. Let's experience that. And it's interesting because we've seen, haven't we, throughout Chronicles, we see this throughout Scripture, that ultimately all of Scripture points towards Jesus, and the temple itself is no exception. There was a time when Jesus was in the temple, turning over tables in the front of the temple, uh, chasing people out, money changers out of the temple uh, because he was frustrated with the way they were exploiting God's people. And he says to them, he says to the religious leaders who complain about this, Jesus says in John chapter 2, verses 19 and 21, destroy this temple, he says, and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us clearly he was speaking of the temple of his body. And the same way that the, the, the temple, the Old Testament temple that we're looking at today that Solomon built, was a place where God would dwell, Jesus himself, being God clothed in human flesh, dwelt among us. And so what we see about the temple, we really need to see about Jesus, that God intends us to to understand his accessibility to us through Jesus. That it's Jesus who's made God so accessible. It's Jesus who who wants to assure us that we can come into this place and meet with God. Now you might go, okay, yeah, we know that. That's good. That's really great. But I hope, listen, and I pray that we understand how huge this really is. That as we look at this dedication ceremony, as we see what's going on, that we begin to realize, wow, this is what we actually have in Jesus. 
So we pick it up in chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Here's what we read. What, what I have for you today basically is four main points from this section. And the first two I'm going to go really quickly through. The third one we'll really talk about uh, a lot about Solomon's prayer. We'll take more time on, and then we'll close with the fourth. So, first one really quick. Let's talk about how the, the priests experience the manifest presence of God. Chapter 5, verse 2. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that he might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. And so all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark, the, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were assembled with him before the ark, were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude." Now we'll see throughout this, in fact, if you want to go over to verse 11 of chapter 5, this is what we read there. It says, and it came to pass when all the priests, or when the priests came out of the most holy place, and then it says in parentheses, for all the priests uh, who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping their divisions. And the Levites, verse 12, who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linens, having cymbals, and they're playing their music. Now, the, the reason I bring this up is the author really wants the first readers to know everybody was on the same page. They all went to the temple for the same reason. We don't want to forget this. We don't want to miss this because it's important that we see this. We've seen this throughout the, the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles. We've seen how the author is wanting to encourage these people who are going, who've come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, that he wants to encourage them, listen, it's important that we do this together, that we're one in this, that all of us are involved in this. The psalmist talks about it this way. The psalmist says in Psalm 133, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. There's something that God wants to bless when we all come together as one. Now listen, not just one under something we make up, but one under Him. Specifically, one in Jesus. That when we do that, when we say, Lord, we're here for you, we're here to draw near to you, that God commands a blessing in that place. It's funny how often when we come to church or when we gather together with believers, we're often not there for Jesus. We're there for ourselves because we feel maybe guilty if I miss. Or we're there because we're really needy, which is okay. We should go to church when we're needy because that's where our needs get met. Or we're there because, well, we feel, uh, we feel like obligated you want to be disciplined. We have all kinds of motives for gathering together with God's people, but God wants himself to be our motive for gathering together. We're God, we're coming together as your people because you've commanded there's a blessing in that kind of unity. When we all come together, we, we want to be near you. And so what happens is they do this, and if you look at verse 9, it's interesting as well because the author makes it clear 
In describing kind of what was in the tabernacle, specifically in the Holy of Holies, he says this is the, the poles that had the ark. He says the poles extended so that the end of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary that could not be seen from the outside. Notice it says, and they are there to this day. In other words, when the author writes this stuff down, he says, listen, just the way it was for them, all those decades ago when, God, when Solomon built this glorious temple, it is for us today in this maybe not so glorious temple. That even though our temple might not be as shiny as Solomon's temple, the generation that first read this would have gone, but you know what? The Ark of the Covenant is there. God still wants to inhabit this place. This is important. Because when we talk about this, what, what really what the author of Chronicles wants the first readers to understand is he's saying, listen, their experience that they experienced back then in Solomon's day should be our expectation. That this place where God, where God commanded that, that a house be built for him, where he said, this is the way I want it to look, this is the reason I want it to be there, this is the place that God wants to meet us, and they experience God there, and we should expect to experience God there as well. And the same goes for us. The experience that we're going to read right now about what happened at the temple that day when they all came together to worship. We should have that kind of expectation. So let's talk about that for a second. In verse 14, what does it say happened? So they're all gathered together. They're singing these praises to God. They're singing, for he is good, his mercies endure forever. And as they're praising God and singing God together as priests and as the congregation on the outside of the temple, here's what we see. So that the priests, verse 14, could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. It's interesting. This is the way God does this. When God wants to show that he's actually there, that he fills it in, in a sense, we, this is what we call the manifest presence of God. God uh, the Bible teaches that God's omnipresent. That means he's all, uh, in all places at once. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But this is what we call the manifest presence of God, where God wants to show himself. He wants to make, make it clear to his people that he's there with them in a very tangible way, in a very real way. That he does it here in such a way that it causes ministry to actually stop. And it's as if God wants to say to his people, listen, you're doing what I've called you to do. That's good. You're obeying as I've called you to obey. That's good. But what's more important than what you do is who I am. It's who I am. Now, at this point, some of you guys are th might be thinking, does John mean that a cloud's going to come down and we're all going to be kind of blown away and not be able to minister? I mean, God could do that, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. You guys remember the prophet Elijah, the experience that Elijah had? Elijah's running away from Jezebel, the queen of, kind of a, the queen of heaven, as she was called, or uh, Ahab's wife, who was the wicked king of, of uh, Israel at the time. He's running away from her because he's stressed out. And he runs off to the desert, and basically what happens? God says, rest a while, eat a while. And, and he kind of does that for a bit. And then what happens is God wants to speak to Elijah. And so God sends this massive whirlwind, kind of like what's going on outside. This huge, loud, whoosh, whirlwind. And the scripture says, but God was not in the wind. Then he sends this fire, whoosh, down on, to, 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 on the brush around him. But it says, but God was not in the fire. He sends an earthquake. Whoa, the rocks are 
moving back and forth. And it says, but God was not in the earthquake. But then he speaks to Elijah, listen, in a still, small voice. The reason I'm bringing this together with this is not because God doesn't do big, explosive things. God still does big, explosive things today. But often when he wants to manifest his presence, he speaks to us in that still, small voice. Interesting, when God wanted to do the biggest kind of whoosh thing he would do to show that he is present with his people, what happened? Here's what we read in John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, that's God's glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's that speaking about? Jesus. That Jesus, when he walked this earth as such a common-looking man... That Judas had to say, okay, I'll kiss the guy that you're supposed to arrest when he's arrested. But that in him, God himself dwelled. God says, here's how I want to manifest my presence through this person of Jesus. And so the priest experienced this manifest presence of God. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, what happens? Then Solomon spoke, the Lord said, He he would dwell in the dark cloud. I will surely build you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. You get a sense that Solomon kind of says this just in response to that. The cloud comes into the tabernacle. Everyone's kind of blown away. They stop ministering. And you, you almost get a sense that Solomon just says, Wow, Lord, you'd said you'd do this. And he's referring there, what he's kind of quoting there and referring to is in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, when God said this is where he would dwell. God would kind of make himself, he would hide himself in this cloud. But here's what we read in verse 4. What does it say in verse 4? It says, Solomon says, he turns around, he's blessing the, the congregation of Israel, and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hand what he spoke with his mouth. Now we're going to see he's almost what he says basically from chapter or I'm sorry from verse 14 down sorry not verse 14 from verse 4 all the way down to verse 11. What he says there he almost repeats word for word in the prayer. So we'll, we won't read that right now. But I do want you to notice something here that Solomon is rejoicing in the fulfilled promises of God. In other words, when Solomon has this massively supernatural experience with God, he filters that, he, in, he defines that and interprets that through what God has already said in his word. This is really important because I, I want you guys to be clear that we as a church, we believe that God still does supernatural stuff. We believe God wants to manifest himself through what, we, what the Bible calls the gifts of the spirit or the, the Greek word is the charismata. We believe God still does that. But the way we know it's God and not just a counterfeit is we go back to Scripture and say, Lord, did this happen? Now, here's what's tricky. Sometimes we can grow suspicious and then really what happens is nothing happens. As opposed to saying, God, would you do what you want to do in our midst? And we'll go back to Scripture to make sure that we know that that's you that's doing it. In a sense, this is what Solomon does. He goes, wow, Lord, this is exactly what you said in Exodus you would do. And Solomon is acknowledging that all that's happened, the temple being built, everything provided for, God manifesting himself through his presence there, all of that has been God's work according to God's word. See, the God that we follow, guys, the God that we pursue, that we gather together to pursue, this is a God that says what he does and then does what he says. This is the God that we follow. 
interesting. Again, listen to what Jesus himself said in John chapter 14. This is right before Jesus is going to be crucified. It's the upper room discourse. Right before he's going to be crucified, resurrected, and ascended to his father. He says to his disciples who are really troubled by the fact that Jesus says he's going away. He says to them, there's more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have uh, told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Do you see what's going on there? Jesus is saying, listen, listen. I, don't I always tell you what I'm going to do and then do what I'm telling you? Don't I always kind of give you what the plan is and then fulfill the plan? This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's comforting them with these words. This is what God wants to do with us. God says, look, I'm not, I'm not going to just kind of surprise you so you have no clue what's going on. He says, I'm going to tell you, here's what I'm going to do, and then guess what's going to happen? I'm going to do what I said. This is the God we can trust. This is the God that we pursue. This is the God that Solomon's rejoicing in. Now, verse 12 of chapter 6, and really from verses 12 down to verse 39 is the part that we really want to focus on. Because here what we see in Solomon's prayer is Solomon relying on the unchanging character of God. And this is where our hope needs to be, in the unchanging character of God. Verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands, for Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. It's about ten feet high. And he set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, notice, he knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands toward heaven. Now, this by itself is, this tells us something about, about Solomon. It tells us something really about our God. Solomon here is kind of, even though he's king of Israel, in a sense he's ministering before uh, God's people as priest. He's not a priest, he's the king, but he's doing this. And in this, he's actually given us a great picture of Jesus, who's, who's not just uh, our great high priest, but he's also our king, and he's also a prophet speaking for God. He's prophet, priest, and king. And what's great about this, too, is the fact that Solomon, what is Solomon doing? He's in an exalted position, so everyone can see him. But what is he doing? He's humbling himself before the Father. He's kneeling, just like Jesus, in an exalted position, but humbling himself before the Father. And as he does this, listen what happens. Verse 14. It says, And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, uh, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hands, just like he said before, as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you've promised your, your servant David, uh, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their ways, that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, because you have spoken it to your servant David. In other words, Solomon is praying what he's heard God already say. Then in verse 18, here's what he says. But will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Now this is a really important thing because the, the, the common thought 
in that day in the world was that each culture had their own gods. Each location, each locality had their own gods. And so when, when the God of Israel is talked about, the, those that were not from Israel would think, okay, that's the God that dwells in the land that Israel's possessing. It's a local God, a local deity, okay? And Solomon is recognizing something the scripture said from day one, that the God of the Bible is not just the God that's suff- that is stuck in one locality. That the God of the Bible is greater than all that he's made. The word is transcendent. He's beyond all of his creation. That's what the Bible teaches about God. And so if you think about the vastness of the universe, even just the the vastness of our solar system, God cannot be contained inside of that. If you think about a universe that we cannot measure, that we can't even, we can only guess about its size, God cannot be contained in that. He's greater than all of that. Solomon gets it. Solomon gets, God, you're bigger than this house that we've made. You're bigger than this temple that you've provided for us. He's acknowledging this. But look at verse 19. He says, yet regard the prayer of your servant. Solomon's saying, yeah, God, listen to me, please, when I pray, when I pray. And end his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, to the place you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, God, I know that you're transcendent, that you're kind of separate from your creation, that we can't contain you, we can't box you in, but if this is a place you said you'd meet us, Would you meet us here? That's what he's saying. This is so important. If you don't see God as greater than creation, if you see God, the God of Scripture specifically, as something that man has made up to help him cope, you don't know God. Because the creator of the universe did not need to create to be God. He's always been God. He created to express himself, his love. And he, the crowning point of his creation with us, the creatures who are able to know his love in a way that no other part of creation can know. This God is so vast, and yet this God is willing to draw near to the individual who says, God, can you hear me? If this is the place you said we could meet, would you hear me here? Now, where do we meet God? What's the place that we're given to meet? Listen to this. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is head over every ruler and authority. Do you understand what this is? This is some really deep stuff here, but it's important to get this. That the author of Scripture there, Paul, talking in Colossians, is saying this. Paul saying, listen... All that God is decided to dwell or tabernacles read earlier in the human Jesus. That's what happens. So that we don't go to a temple made with hands. We go to Jesus to meet with God. We can have the same assurance. In fact, we have a greater assurance that we can meet with God because of Jesus. See that temple that Solomon built? Guess what happened to that temple? Anybody know? It was totally destroyed. 
It was destroyed, and then, the, uh, and then the people were taken into captivity. So what happens when they get back from captivity? They've got to build that temple again. You know what happened to the temple that these guys that we're reading about built? You know what happened to that temple, the second temple? It got destroyed. And so what happened? Another guy named Herod had to come, and he had to sort of rebuild that temple. It took him like 60 years. It wasn't even finished until after Jesus came and, and ascended into heaven. And then what happened to that temple? 1970, or 1970, not 1970. <laughs> 70 A.D., 2,000 years before, or 1,900 years before 1970. 2,000 uh, years before that. In the year 70 A.D., what happened? That temple was destroyed. See, the thing is, those temples were destroyed, but what did Jesus say? He says, you destroyed this temple, what's going to happen? Three days later, I'm going to raise it back up. So the temple we go to is a man named Jesus. He's our go-between between the creator God and us. Because he is both the creator God and like us. Guys, seriously, if God wants to make himself known in such a powerful, clear, authentic, realistic, tangible way in a building, how much more through his son Jesus? How much more should we expect coming to him through his son Jesus? See, Solomon's going to the unchanging character of God. He sees God as the God who is both separate, transcendent, and close to those who come to him as God has ordained now, verse 21, quickly. Solomon also sees him as the God who judges and forgives. Verse 21, and Solomon prays, and may you hear the supplication of your servants and your people Israel when they pray towards this place, hear, your, hear from heaven your dwelling place when you hear, forgive. And if anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Now, it's important that we see here that as Solomon prays and brings up this whole issue of forgiveness, his actual whole prayer is framed by this reality of forgiveness. But it's important right now that we see in these few verses that Solomon is connecting, and this is what the scripture does everywhere, connecting forgiveness with justice. Forgiveness with justice. That according to the scripture, we cannot separate those two realities. You see, to forgive in a biblical sense is to treat the guilty as if they're innocent. Now, as I say this, some of you might be thinking of things that have been done against you. You feel like, I just cannot forgive. I can't treat that person as innocent. No way. In fact, I don't know about you, but there are people in my life that I feel like, okay, I don't feel like I'm holding this against them, but I really don't want to be back in relationship with them. You guys know what I mean? Ever felt that way? But really, in a biblical sense, forgiveness, listen, forgiveness means treating the guilty as if they're innocent. This is what God means when he says that we are forgiven. How can that be just, though? Let's, talk, let's, let's bring up a scenario that, and I hope this doesn't trigger anybody, but a horrible scenario, a scenario I don't know that I could forgive, humanly speaking. Let's talk about being abused as a child. Specifically, maybe being sexually abused as a child. Maybe even abused by your parent. I can't imagine, that didn't happen to me, I'm thankful, but I can't imagine the kind of damage that you might feel if that happened. 
How do you forgive? How could it even be right to forgive? Is it right that people get away with this? I don't know about you, but sometimes the thing that makes me the most angry, the thing that, that sometimes makes me question my faith and it makes me realize I have no hope but my faith is the fact that there is so much wickedness like that in the world and it doesn't seem to be dealt with. People seem to get away with junk. And what God's saying here is, what Solomon is praying here is, Father, forgive your people that turn to you but still deal with the junk. He, he won't separate those two things. How does that work? It works this way. It works in the sense that, that forgiveness and justice are so intertwined that we see them only being fulfilled at the cross of Jesus. In fact, when it comes to our forgiveness, God forgiving us, here's what the scripture says. Let's notice how forgiveness and justice are put together. 1 John 1, uh, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful, means he does it every time, and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can God be just? Have you ever blasphemed, slandered God or cursed at God in your heart? Maybe I should say, have you done that today? And you've had that thought. You've had that. You, you've, you've thought, no, this is ridiculous. How is God just in forgiving that? Have you, have you done something to somebody else that maybe nobody else knows about and you beg God to forgive you and you hope you don't get found out? And the reason you're afraid you're going to get found out is because you know if justice was served, you'd be in big trouble for that thing that you've done to somebody else. Yet the Bible says if we confess our sins, that say, God, I say the same thing about my sin that you say. I'm deserving of hell because of it. It's a sin against you. And here's the other thing. Christ died for it. The reason we can know that God is just in forgiving us is because the punishment we deserve for our sin, Jesus already took. You know that, right? Do you believe that? And if you believe that Jesus died for the sin of mankind, that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay to satisfy the wrath of God against us, to satisfy the just judgment of God against us. If you believe that he's paid for the sins you've done, do you also believe he's paid for the sins done against you? Because this is how it works. In Matthew chapter uh, 18, Jesus tells this parable. He actually, his disciples, the, the context of the story, his disciples ask him, Lord, how many times did I forgive my brother who sinned against me? Seven times? Seven times up to seven times in a day? Because the sort of Jewish mindset of the day, the kind of culture of the day, uh, would see that as, no, you, you, you forgive someone three times a day, and after that you cut them off. And what did Jesus say? You guys know the answer. Jesus says, not, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. It doesn't mean 490 times. Hopefully, hopefully you're not keeping track if it's like that. It just means you just keep forgetting them. And then he tells this parable. You guys remember this story. And what, what, what's the story goes? He talks about a man who owes uh, somebody tons of money. And so he goes to this person and he says, please, it's like we're talking millions of pounds. He says, please have mercy on me. When the person wants to throw him in debtor's prison, he says, have mercy on me. And the, and the person who was owed the money had compassion and he forgave him the whole debt. 
And then the person who's forgiven this debt goes off and he finds somebody who owes him like a tenor. And he says, I'm going to send you in the debtor's prison unless you pay me. And the people goes, please have mercy on me. He goes, no. And he chucks him in the prison. And what happens? The first guy, the, the guy who, who was owed the millions, finds out and says, you know what? That's, that's bogus. And he takes the guy who did this and he chucks him into jail. And here's how Jesus closes off the parable, talking about forgiveness. Listen, he says, so my heavenly father will also condemn you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Do you feel the weight of that? Now, this is not our God being insensitive to our pain. Nobody <laughs> relates to us, understands us, has more compassion for us about how we've been sinned against than Jesus. Nobody understands what it means to be betrayed or abandoned or abused than Jesus. And yet he says, listen, you need to forgive. Why? Because you've been fully and freely forgiven. So that because you believe what Jesus has done is enough, you can be fully forgiven. So you can say, Lord, I want forgiveness for that person who sinned against me in such a horrible way. Now, does that mean that, you, that that person's automatically forgiven? No, that person needs to repent before God. That person needs to get, do their business with God. Does that mean that you put yourself in a place where they continue to hurt you? No, yeah, that's, there's wisdom in, in staying away. But that what's out there is the, is the desire for reconciliation, even if that can't come to fullness until we all see God face to face. The desire for reconciliation based on what? That justice of God has been served on Jesus. Now, I'm way far behind. i got to speed this up a bit. Solomon's praying to the God who judges and forgives. Solomon's also praying to the God who corrects and instructs. Look at verse 24. He says, if he prays for, or if our people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and return and confess your name and pray, make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive their sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave them and their fathers. And when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel, that, they, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land in which you have given to your people as an inheritance. And listen, this is important because what Solomon's praying here is he's picturing both a military uh, defeat as well as a lack of prosperity, you know, bad crops, both those things as instruments that God might use to correct his people. Now, if you're going through a really difficult time, I'm not saying you should automatically assume God's busting you for something. That's not always healthy. But it is healthy when we're going through a difficult time that seems that there's no, nothing's letting up, that we say before God, God, what are, you, what are you trying to teach me here? I know that you're bigger than my problems, and I know that you're in control ultimately, so why have you allowed this? What are you trying to teach me here? Because that's what God's trying to do. We serve a God who never allows us to suffer purposelessly. There's no such thing as meaninglessness with our God. 
There's a reason for every bit of pain we go through. He's wanting to teach us something good, something eternal. Solomon's praying to that person, to that God. We see this in Jesus again, don't we? It says, when Jesus had finished, this is Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he's finishing teaching the crowds, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Now, I can only teach you with the authority of the Scripture. I can only say this is what the Scripture says. Jesus can say, I say this, and it's absolutely and eternally true. So if, if Jesus says, listen, if he says there's nothing that you're experiencing that I'm not going to use for your good, guess what? That is absolute eternal truth. This is the God we pray to. He's the God, verse 28 to 33, he's the God of individuals and the God of all nations. Look at verse 28. And when there was a famine in the land, or when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever <clears throat> plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hand to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways whose hearts you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. I love this. Because Solomon again is praying, Lord, we're coming to you as your people together, but we're also coming to you as individuals. You know where we're at. You know our hearts better than we know ourselves. We are quick to judge each other's hearts, which is kind of stupid because we can't even know our own hearts sometimes. We need to, listen, you know, we need to honor people as individuals. You know why? Because God does. Because he meets us as individuals. Now, don't confuse this. I'm not saying that truth is individual. Truth is absolute, applies to everyone. But how God deals with us is as individuals. He loves us as individuals. I th think again about how we started this, this, this whole thing, how Solomon started his prayer. God, we can't contain you anywhere, let alone this building, and yet you care about this individual. I can imagine when Solomon prays this, maybe some... Poor old widow back in the crowd somewhere thinking, God, I, I, I'm insignificant in this nation. I'm insignificant in the, in my, in, in the tribe that I'm a part of. I'm insignificant in the family that I'm a part of. God, I'm nothing. And yet Solomon, my king, says I can pray to you and you'll hear me as much as you hear him. I think because we think so individualistically, uh, in our culture today, we kind of think, oh, of course God cares about me. Why would we assume that? Except the scripture teaches that. But he's not just the God of the individual. He's the God of all nations. Look what he says in verse 32. This would have been, I think at this point when Solomon's praying this, there would have been that awkward silence in the crowd possibly. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not in your people, who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when you come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth 
may know your name and fear you as you do to your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called for your or called by your name. Remember when Jesus, as we mentioned earlier, kind of cleaned out the temple, the money changers for the temple? What did he kind of yell at the guys? What did he kind of tell them off with? He says, this, this is my father's house. It's meant to be a, a house of prayer for who? All nations. And you've made it a den of thieves. I love this because, yes, God chose Israel, specifically the nation of Israel, to make himself known. But to what end? So that all the nations could know that the God of Israel is not the God stuck in the land of Israel, but the God of all peoples, the creator of the whole universe. Again, guys, listen to this. Uh, thinking about how Jesus affirms that the need to minister to them or, or, or to value the individual as well as value in all nations. Jesus says in, in Luke chapter uh, 13, verse 16, there's a woman who's uh, been sick for a long time and the Pharisees are mad because Jesus healed her on a Sabbath. And so Jesus says, So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abram, Abraham, whom Satan has bowed, think of it, for 18 years, been loosed on this, uh, from this bond on the Sabbath? He's, Jesus is mad. He's, he's thinking to the religious guys, you're freaked out about the Sabbath. This woman, this individual woman has been in bondage for 18 years to this demonic sickness. Shouldn't she be loose on the Sabbath? He cares about her more than he cares about the reputation of the Sabbath. And it was Jesus who said to us in, in Matthew chapter 28, right? Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations. Listen, if you call yourself a Jesus follower and you don't repent of your racist attitudes, there's a serious issue. In fact, I, 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 I need to make sure that we, we recognize this. We do realize, I hope, I hope we realize that we follow a Savior who was Middle Eastern looking. Are you okay with that? You should be. Because as far as this is, God's concerned, that doesn't matter. He's the God of all nations. One of the, things that's going to, the only thing that's going to ever unify us is us being submitted, all nations being submitted to Christ. See, we need to value different cultures because God does. He's redeeming different cultures. He's the God of all individuals and all nations. Moving quickly. He's the God who both keeps and chastens. Verse 34. When your people go out to battle, Solomon prays against their enemies. Wherever you send them, and when they pray to you towards the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for, for your name, and they hear from heaven, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication, notice, and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin against you, and you become angry with them and deliver them to your enemy, and they, they take them captive to a land far or near. Remember who's reading this or hearing this read. People who have just come back out of captivity. He says, yet when they come to themselves in the land which they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have done wrong, have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their hearts and all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive, and pray toward the land which you have given their fathers, the city which you have chosen, toward the temple which I have built in your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive uh, your people 
who have sinned against you. Now, this phrase, maintain their cause, used in verse 34 and verse, 30, uh, verse 39, their cause of Israel was to represent the only great God before all the nations. Sometimes that cause meant they had a fight against those other nations who were trying to dominate them. Sometimes God even said, I want you to wipe out that nation who's trying to exalt their God over me. And so sometimes it involved a war. Now, here's a really important thing. We're involved in a war as Christians. But our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against other human beings. We're to preach the gospel to all nations. But in that, with that cause to take the gospel to all nations, there's going to be resistance, demonic resistance. And sometimes, guess what? We're going to lose. We're going to fail. One of the things that's really hard about living in this time of history is how many big leaders within Christendom are failing and falling all the time. It's really hard to see. I need a sabbatical so I don't fall, just so you know. It's important. Because this is what happens. The enemy wants to attack and destroy and try to undermine the cause of God, which is to bring as many people as possible into the kingdom. And Solomon is saying, Lord, keep us. Keep us to, so that we're able to maintain the cause. We're able to keep doing that. And when we fail, when the enemy wins and we fail, chasten us and bring us back. Guys, this is great news for us. Because here's the truth, right? The truth is God's always in the business of bringing us back. This is, this is what we need to understand. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a daily practice for us as Jesus followers. The Apostle Paul is, is sharing with the leaders of the uh, Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20. And here's what he says to them. He says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house, I have declared both to the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying, I did that to individuals and then I, I walked away. He's saying, I continue to do that over and over again in the churches and in people's homes, saying, listen, it's all about you turning back to God and believing that what Jesus did was enough. Over and over again. That's the gospel. Guys, listen, God is keeping us because of the gospel. Listen, and God us, chastens us, disciplines us to bring us back to the gospel. To bring us back to that simple, saving faith. Now, I'm almost done. This is the God that Solomon is seeking. This is the God that Solomon is relying on. This is the God that we're taught to pray to and rely on. The God that showed himself in Jesus Christ. And so chapter 7, verse 1, here's what we read. And when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt uh, offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter. Forget about having to stop ministering. They couldn't even enter into the house of God because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and, and worshiped and praised Lord, saying, For he is good, and his mercies endure forever. 
when something good happens in my life, especially like when I see maybe uh, someone I love kind of getting through a difficult time and some great sort of victory or, 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 or a great problem is solved, something like that, you know what I usually do? I respond with a, yes, get in, come on. There's enthusiasm. Mm. You know how God responds with enthusiasm? Whoosh, fire, consuming the sacrifice. You know, we see in Scripture this only happened a few times. It's only happened a few times. And each time it was God enthusiastically saying, I accept the sacrifice. I, it's like God saying amen from heaven to all that Solomon prayed. It was like that. This is what God wants for us. This consuming fire. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, writes this. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, can't collapse, can't fall down, he says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Guys, do you understand what the author of Hebrews is talking about there? He's saying, let's be thankful. Let's come to God and say, God, thank you. You are good. Your mercies endure forever. We come with, to God with a reverence and a thankfulness because we know we're accepted because of Jesus, that we're forgiven because of Jesus, that we're loved because of Jesus, that we have a hope because of Jesus. And what's been proven is the fire came down. Jesus was that sacrifice on the cross and God put a huge amen when the grave was opened up and Jesus walked out. And Jesus ascends to heaven. And what happens? He ascends to heaven, tells his people, wait in Jerusalem until what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them, what's, what comes upon them? Tongues of fire. Whoosh! These are my people. These are the ones who will worship me in thankfulness, in reverence, in awe. Guys, here's what we offer to God. We don't have a sacrifice to bring to God and say, God, okay, based on this sacrifice, forgive me. We come to God and we say, God, I offer my life because I believe you purchased my life through your son, Jesus. You know what God says to that? Whoosh. <laughs> He's a consuming fire. He takes it all. He says, Amen. That's all I've wanted. I've only wanted you. What happens here is, is it describes how God's people responded to this, how they continued to sacrifice tens of thousands of, of, of animals in worship. They continue to sing to God. His mercies endure forever. All the priests and everyone. Just, it, in fact, it was such a huge thing that Solomon has to consecrate. Verse 7 says he consecrates the middle court. So they're on the outside of the tabernacle. They can't go inside or the temple. They can't go inside the temple because of the glory of God. But God's done such a work there. Outside the tabernacle, as fires come down. That he says, this is a holy place as well. And God's in this place. And they're worshiping God together. And then the section sums up this way in verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord 
and in his own house. Now, this is not all we're going to read about Solomon, and we'll, we'll see some more next week. But it's important for us that we see that Solomon's success should define our success. Some of you are frustrated with your lives because you feel like you're not as successful as you thought. But I would challenge you, how are you measuring success? If you call yourself a Jesus follower, how are you measuring success? Because here's success in the eyes of Scripture. Here's how Solomon was a success. God said, Solomon, here's what I have for you to do. Just do it. Just be faithful to me. The success wasn't the fact that he had such a grand experience. That grand experience wasn't just for the sake of Solomon. It was for all God's people. The success was God had called him to build a house where God could make himself known. And guess what? God followed through and made himself known. Listen, you are successful if God is making himself known to you and through you. And we don't get to dictate the terms. We'd all love to say, yes, I want to be able to build, as God says, and build something grand. And look at this, God. You've done this great thing. And I could say, see, look what God did. But sometimes here's what God wants to do. He wants to make himself known to you and to others through your hardship, pain, and failure. But he still wants to make himself known. That's success. Do people see Jesus through you? Do you see Jesus through the life that you're in now? Because that's success. Here's what the scripture says. I'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And you are living stones, talking to us, that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you are a holy priest. And through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. How do you please God? By faith. God, I believe you. I believe that Jesus is enough. I believe he's enough to guarantee my place in heaven. I believe he's enough to follow after day by day. I believe he's enough for me to enjoy a real relationship with you. Jesus is enough. God wants to meet you at Jesus. Do you want to meet him there? Father, I pray that you would help us. You would help every single one of us meet with you through Jesus. That, Lord, we would know that everything that hinders us, everything that we makes us want to resist meeting with you, we'd see that the answer is in Jesus. That he's where we have that real relationship with you. Father, I pray you would meet us here I pray, Father, that not only as we gather together would you make yourself known to us, but I pray as we get along with you day by day, you would make yourself known to us. That your presence would fill our hearts. Lord, that you'd move in our midst in such a way that when people come to church, they'd say, surely God is in this place. Father, it's you that we want. Meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.